Digital Gonzo, episode 129, recorded Sunday the 21st of April 2013, Bioshock, Minerva's Den. I dreamed of a computer that could think for itself. Mom, what's seven times twelve? Don't ask me. Silly. Ask the computer tutor. And using Rapture's technology, I made that dream reality. The Rapture Central Computing mainframe performs over one million calculations per second. A machine that can actually think reason for itself. The Thinker, the most helpful machine in Rapture. This is the third of four shows dedicated to the Bioshock series. Tonight we will be covering the downloadable content adventure attached to Bioshock 2, Minerva's Den, as well as the protector trials and multiplayer mode of Fall of Rapture. We'll be talking about the first two main games with spoilers across the board, but nothing about Infinite until next time. With me tonight are Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home. Good evening. And Mark Ord of Gonzo Planet. Hello. And joining us at the bottom of the sea, Mr. Chris Eason of Gameburst. Oh, hi, hi. You will also hear from Tony Atkins of Kane and Rince and Gary Blower of Gameburst. Minerva's Den is a rare beast indeed. It is an 800-point piece of DLC for a relatively popular sequel that will never escape the awe-inspiring monolithic shadow of the original. Crucially, it is a quality piece of work, a swiftly digestible miniature version of the other full game experiences. It offers combat just as compelling and variable as Sea of Dreams and a short, backloaded plot that will stay with you when you're done. DLC is not usually designed to have a plot of its own. It's there to complement the core game, to be tangential in nature or a final taste of the world before moving on to the next sequel. In that regard, it also offers us what may well be the last experience of Rapture in this generation, or maybe ever. I will confess now that in my final walk to the bathosphere with so much achieved in such a short time over these past few games and podcasts that I dragged my feet. I gazed forlornly at the grand piano, the bookshelves, the fallen punch cards. After all I had done to fight my way to the finish line, now at the point of escape, I did not want to let Rapture go, to leave it lying in the dark on the ocean bed, stripped of all innocence and virtue. I wanted to save her. And this is what the development team intended. Tenenbaum's words to you are, take your time. Take your time. When was the last time a game asked you to stop and think? Absorb what you've just gone through. You get told to go to XYZ when you're ready, but nobody ever implies that it might be of benefit for you to stop and smell the roses. I got shades of my first step into Rapture back in 2007, my first wander down the streets of Columbia. This is a world that they spent so long designing and polishing up that I'm pretty sure that none of the team wanted to leave either. Charles Porter is not alone in trying to bring back somebody he loves using his own brilliance. In Kenneth Branagh's 1994 adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Victor brings back Elizabeth, an act he immediately regrets for its unnatural connotations. This is something Lewis Creed discovers in Pet Cemetery. Professor Alan Hobby, in AI Artificial Intelligence, creates the world's first mecha child, designed to love its owner back as a child to a parent. 
He models David on his own dearly departed son, motivated by a desperate, burning, secretive desire to have back what the Reaper stole from him. Superman turned the Earth back on its axis, meddling with time for his own selfish need to keep Lois alive. Neo broke the code of the Matrix to undo the harm done to Trinity, even if only for a while. Cadmus Peveril, the second of the three brothers in the Deathly Hallows mythology, found that the shade of his wife, when brought back with the Resurrection Stone, grew cold and distant. The scientists in Alien Resurrection clawed Ellen Ripley back to a state of being, with dire consequences for all involved. In all cases, this is presented as an act of being unable to let go when you should. The grief process is one of the most complex and devastating states a person can go through. How they deal with it can be transformative for good or ill. There is no set pattern or formula for coping, but one of the key aspects is letting go. As Charles here, you are led through the entire game, yourself a Frankenstein creation, brought back from perdition. Persephone. Rapture's prison colony is the name of the daughter of Zeus, consort of Hades and queen of the underworld. Unaware of your own identity, of your own real motivations for vengeance and rescue. But this is another trope of video games. We are happy to play a nameless, silent protagonist being fed information on the world around us. We're used to it. It's rare that we stop and think, would my character really do this? If so, why? Now this was the first Bioshock protagonist I'd been able to hear the voice of and understand their worldview. Jack was a four-year-old mute scientist experiment with absolutely no personality or aspirations beyond your own occasionally binary actions. Johnny Topside was an alias for a man nobody ever knew. I knew how Sigma would be affected by the events at the end this time... But that didn't make it any less powerful. In fact, it was possibly more so, as the weight of every memory attached to Charles Porter in his sad, hopeful, frustrated, wasted, fulfilled life came to the fore. The time with Pearl was and shall remain a wonderful short period for Charles when the future was never brighter. It seems wholly appropriate that to give the most advanced computer in the world his creation, her voice and personality might seem like the wrong thing that we all want to do. But these stories exist for a reason. Speaking to all of us, nobody can escape the effects of death. What's clear at the end is that throughout our lives, no matter what happens, we carry the people we love along with us. Okay, so before we get to the main conversation, we have a snippet from the May 2012 Game Burst replay of Minerva's Den. And this is Gary Blower on the historical real-world aspects. I've now played, I think, all of the Bioshocks at least twice, maybe even three times. And this is the second time I've done Minerva's Den. 
So you can tell I kind of, I kind of like it a lot. The thing that makes Minerva's Den so special is that it's got a story that's rooted and based in a reality that we can all associate with. What it, what it successfully does is it takes the fictitious world of Rapture, which is really well defined anyway, and actually makes a connection to to our real world and in fact to British history the events of the Second World War and cracking the Enigma Codes in Bletchley House and people like Alan Turing and linking all that and weaving that all into this this story which is set around what is uh, Rapture's burgeoning information technology revolution really computer called the thinker which as Chris said is 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 built to control things it's an artificial intelligence that was created to to run and automate the city meshing those two things together just made it a really special story and it's kind of improved by the fact that it's it's that little bit shorter and you tend to find that as you're playing it as a as as a as a big daddy as it is in this case um as opposed to the the regular Bioshock 2 you actually level up a lot quicker um, and you get access to a lot of the high level plasmids and some really cool unique new weapons very early in the DLC and then the DLC itself is really substantial I mean it's about four or five hours to, to actually play through it one of the cool things about the fiction is the fact because um, effectively and this is in the novel as well I, you know, I don't want to dwell on that too much talk about the game but because Rapture was built in the sort of, I think, early 50s. From 1946 onwards. And then everyone who was put down into Rapture was then isolated from the outside world. All the science and technology that then developed in Rapture through the 50s and 60s to, to where you are in, in the game. I think it's not, I think you're 1969, I think, when, in uh, Minerva's Den. I can't remember. It's quite mm-hmm. late though. It is 1969. It happens concurrent with Sea of Dreams. It's completely forked. So although a lot of the technology's got this, this is seeded, um, in sort of post-war innovations, the stuff that happens in Rapture is is followed a completely different path. And they, what they really cleverly did with a lot of the bringing in some of the computer science stuff into the story was actually to take that on board and make that happen as well. Lots of stuff is driven through punch cards and stuff and things like that, which of course they were in, in early computing uh, outside of Rapture. But a lot of those were done away with by this point. You know, they were replaced with other other types of meat, uh, other mediums. Um, but here it's still key, you know, and, and you've got these great big machines with um, with paper flying through it, being with all the holes being punched in it and stuff. It's really um, and they and they've kind of used the uh, gene splicing technology that they got from the atom slugs and and used that to enhance not only the people who were developing the thing, but also what the the thinker then became as well. So it's it's really quite cool how they did that. It, you know, it really really worked. Alan Turing was a British mathematician, logician, cryptanalyst, and computer scientist. He was highly influential in the development of computer science, giving a formalization of the concepts of algorithm and computation with the Turing machine, which can be considered a model of a general-purpose computer. Turing is widely considered to be the father of computer science and artificial intelligence. During World War II, Turing worked for the Government Code and Cipher School at Bletchley Park, Britain's code-breaking centre. For a time, he was head of Hut 8, the section responsible for German naval cryptanalysis. He devised a number of techniques for breaking German ciphers, including the method of the BOM, an electromechanical machine that could find settings for the Enigma machine. This is when Porter was supposed to have worked with him and gained his approval. Post-war, in 1952, he was arrested for 
gross indecency, which in the blushingly non-specific Victorian parlance meant being a homosexual. His choice was jail time or chemical castration. He chose the latter and was found dead of cyanide poisoning shortly after. It is still not known whether his death was a suicide or an accident. At least it's not been proven. In August 2009, John Graham Cumming started a petition urging the British government to posthumously apologise to Alan Turing for prosecuting him as a homosexual. The petition received thousands of signatures. Prime Minister Gordon Brown acknowledged the petition, releasing a statement on 10th of September 2009, apologising and describing the treatment of Turing as appalling. Thousands of people have come together to demand justice for Alan Turing in recognition for the appalling way he was treated. While Turing was dealt with under the law of the time, we can't put the clock back. His treatment was, of course, utterly unfair, and I'm pleased to have had the chance to say how deeply sorry I am and how we all are for what happened to him. So on behalf of the British government and for all those who live free, thanks to Alan's work, I'm very proud to say we're sorry you deserved much better. Now, Turing is only mentioned briefly in this, but it seems like his story mirrors a lot of uh, people uh, in Rapture in terms of they were not ultimately welcome in the society they were in. I think a lot of the characters in Rapture were like parallels to the real-life scientists, like Tenenbaum was um, was it Carl and Watson, the DNA geneticists, and I think uh, Porter's like the parallel almost of uh, Alan Turing, you know? Especially in, in Minerva's Den, there is a weird dichotomy between sort of total freedom and then sort of the racism brought up in one of Porter's uh, audio diaries, which said that, you know, he should uh, splice white to to be accepted. Yeah. Um, and then he, he says, you know, well, the point of this is, is what you do, not who you are, so he won't do that. Porter's one of the rare characters in uh, uh, the Bioshock games where... Um, despite the fact that he's done, uh, he's made self-interested decisions, he is clearly a very good person and has not allowed this place to corrupt him. Well, he's, there's something very philanthropic about the things he's trying to achieve and, yeah. and part of what keeps him going is the idea that he doesn't want the thinker to be uh, limited to only being able to help rapture he wants it to be used for the good of mankind i'm sure there's a fear there that he doesn't want the thinker to become corrupted either by the ideologies of alarm and rhyme i think there's an audio diary where he he says to sophia lamb Dear Dr. Lamb, I received the invitation to your little social club today in return i'd like to make you a wager I wager you need Rapture Central Computing just a little bit more than I need your half-baked metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. I deal in science, not whatever it is you're up to. You keep out of Minerva's den, and I'll keep this city's automation from grinding to a complete and sudden halt. Sound fair? Well, speaking Um, of Sophia Lau, I mentioned on Twitter, uh, if everybody has to agree that Bioshock 1 is the best of the series, then Sophia Lamb wins. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, drawing a parallel of Porter to uh, Bill Madonna from the Bioshock 1, is the, you mentioned in the, the podcast that he wants Rapture to succeed just because he has pride in, in what he's built. Yeah. And again, Porter, he wants he wants the thinker to do well because that's, that's his child, effectively. You know, He's built it, he's programmed it, and 
he wants it to be the best it can be despite what it's being used for. He wants it to be kept separate. I mean, uh, Minerva Zeni is very separate to the rest of, of Rapture. The, um, all the splices are far less, their physical appearance is less weird. And that, that someone's postulating that's because, uh, Minerva Zeni is, is, has been closed off for quite a while. So mm. they, they've done a bit of splicing, but it's not gone to the extremes that the rest of Rapture's done. If that is true, I would assume that is because of Porter. He saw it was going bad quickly and he's wanted, he wants to keep it going because without that, Rapture collapses, um, but he didn't want it to be used by Ryan for anything. Yeah. It does make sense that he would try to keep his area run by as much rationality as possible as well. Porter and uh, Turing both seem to be men slightly out of their own time. Like they have minds, uh, like Newton, who ju- just so far, so many streets ahead of, uh, of their contemporaries that they just seem like they've been placed well before humanity was ready to get to that level. Another way that uh, homosexuality is handled in the game, and it's actually really quite subtle, you have to keep your ear open for it, when you get attacked by the brutes in Bioshock 2 and Minerva's Den, they occasionally make homophobic statements, fling insults your way, like call you a puff. Fucking sodomites everywhere. You turn my stomach puff. I'm top man down here. I'll shut your Nancy mouth. I know what you're thinking. Gossiping pansy. Mincing little fuck. Pound you good and proper. Give me your Adam, Mary. I ain't done nothing wrong. Daft bitch won't leave off. Oh, I'm having you. You calling me a puff? He's a hard man. I heard what you said. We're just mates. You tip things. If you use the hypnotized plasmid on them and you have to get it up to level three, while they hang out with you and say you're a bloody good bloke, occasionally they will vouch something along the lines of Can't have a proper mate without accusations. It's all over their faces. Never have the guts to say it. Practically swimming in sodomy down here. Man can barely breathe. Dr. Lamb says to embrace the man in the mirror. How bloody queer is that? Sander Cohen. There was a man. Sharp suit. Good mustache. Took no guff. Birds just talk too much is all. But blokes, you know. Blokes talk with their eyes. We can start over down here. Once we drown out all the buggers and the queens, it'll be real men only. Some thoughts are just wrong. Nasty thoughts. Gotta stop them thoughts right out. In conclusion, it's fairly obvious that the brute has had a fucking terrible upbringing. I'm fairly certain I heard at least one C word coming out of them when they were chucking stuff at me. They're quite terrifying if you've got it on the harder difficulties. They're not exactly unterrifying when you play it on easy. (laughs) You get two of them barreling at you down a corridor, you move. Actually, speaking about that, um, you played the protector trials yesterday, Sharon. What, What was that like? I did. Um, scared the nuts out of me. Um, <laughs> I, it was it was very intense. It was. I don't know whether. Do you remember if there is actually a difficulty setting for that? No, there isn't. So no, there's, 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 there's scale basically. The, the higher the, the trials are, the harder they are. 
Right, okay. Because that, that might be what caused the, the difference then, that uh, just I'm so used easy. to playing it on easy, that this jump up suddenly had a, a big impact. But it, it did feel, I think also because you're in a bottleneck situation, you, you know, you closed in with all of these guys, um, and you have, you have to survive for a very specific amount of time. It was certainly interesting, and it, and what Tony said in the um, the last podcast about it, it does encourage you to experiment with the plasmids that you've got that you may not have used otherwise. Um, the one with the cyclone traps, for example, I'd never used that, mm. and it's actually quite useful if you if you run out of everything else just to be able to fling the guys away from you before they can cause any damage, um, even though it doesn't do significant amounts of harm to them themselves. It certainly ramped up that feeling of survival pressure if not survival horror that i might have been slightly missing from the um the easy playthrough of the game itself yeah it did tickle me pink when uh two groups suddenly turned up at the very very end you're like oh for fuck's sake <laughs> so let's actually hear from tony uh this is actually a bit i had to excise from last week's podcast for time talking about multiplayer and protected trials Good evening, my friends. I hope you are enjoying your New Year's Eve celebration. It has been a year of trials for us all. Tonight, I wish to remind each of you that Rapture is your city. It was your strength of will that brought you here, and with that strength, you shall rebuild. And so, Andrew Ryan offers you a toast. To Rapture, 1959. May it be our finest year. I haven't got a headache, darling, and my vision's okay, too. Just look in my eyes and you can see the trouble with me is you. I haven't got a toothache, darling, they are all as good as new. There's only one thing that's wrong with me, for the trouble with me is you. I played for like four and a half hours of multiplayer, and I think you've played like 28? Yeah. It was, no, no, it was 20. Yeah. It was close to that. Lots. It's strong. It's, it's better than it has, it's better than it had any right to be. Mm. Certainly walking into, coming into a game and everyone being very upset about Bioshock 2 having multiplayer seemed a very common thing at the time to bolt on multiplayer and it, and it really have, you know, no right to be there, but, uh, they, they put a great foundation of when it's set. Um, the fall of Rapture itself, and so, you know, there is a, a story tied to it. You know, the plasmids and the guns work fantastically in a multiplayer, uh, combat scenario, which you'd think they, they should, and it also has all the, the tropes that any good multiplayer has, which is bars that you fill up, um, but your plasmids do become, or your weapons become stronger, and you get different weapons through filling bars, and, mm. um, you know, hacking of machines, and, uh, setting traps and once again if you if you know the plasma systems you can really go to town and it's pretty fair there's a pretty good playing field that you know you're not always overpowered which you, you can feel like a, some of the other games but really good fun yeah the it's something that people could really you, you can sink time into I'm mm. surprised that Infinite has no multiplayer I'm not you know Levine Levine doesn't like it doesn't like it <laughs> 
I did my research on it, and you know, of a friend's list of a hundred people, um, seventy people had played multiplayer. Mm. Like, you know, you could one talk about the popularity of that game amongst a hundred people on my friends list, which you know, there's not many games which I think multiplayer would have appealed to that much. And of, I think it was at least twenty five percent of the people had spent more than twenty hours on it. So, you know, it was a fairly sizable chunk of an experiment I mean you can only do so much but a lot of people mm. played it a lot of people liked it playing in a group definitely better than playing on your own I did throw a few hours into it in the past yeah, week the one, and, uh, one of the weird things is the multiplayer is entirely set from Bioshock 1 locations so mm. Bioshock locations um, so when I went back and, and replayed Bioshock 1 for when we were covering it um Familiar places. Suddenly. Yeah, I because, and in fact, it was weird because Bioshock Two graphically looks better than Bioshock One through you know the couple of years more development. So yeah. I went back into these places; they looked you know less superior than what I remembered them through playing through multiplayer. Yeah. Um, so, but to agree, when you're herring around the place with fire going everywhere, you don't necessarily need to stop and look at how beautifully textured the roses are. No, and they they open up areas and contexts and doors and and stuff that aren't there necessarily in the single player. But it's just it's it's a well thought out, well balanced, and um, plasmids play into multiplayer absolutely perfectly. Mm. More right than they probably any have any right to be uh, to do so. But it was handled by Digital Extremes as a a singular project for them to only concentrate on. So mm. it, it had very little um, you know bearing on what was happening within the single player. Because mm. you know, a whole different studio were, were concentrating, and and I think that ultimately shines through that they spent a good long time working on it. Where rather than it just being a well a, a subsection of the development house needs to work on this, let's just get it out there. Mm. Something like Spec Ops, or you know, would suffer from from now. And it's still very much going. And if folks on the Gonzo Planet forums want to organise some game nights, that might be an idea if everyone's getting into buying a shop. Yeah, we we had a lot sure. of game we had game nights, and um, yeah, full rooms. Well, yeah. I don't think there's thousands of people playing it, but there, you know, there was rooms of 16 people, fully. I think 12 people actually is. So I had no rooms. trouble finding a game, no yeah. trouble at all. And that was on the PS3 as well. So mm. you know, and there were still newbies coming along. At least people that I was able to kill. I got a few kills in. It was good. <laughs> and that's the main thing, right? To feel all powerful. Because if, if, <laughs> if you step into a game that only the elite now play and yeah. are killed within seconds a million times and your corpse goes flying through the air after you're dead, exploding with grenades and things, uh, it, it's disheartening. It, the, uh, the, the ability to photograph corpses on the floor and get a slight damage boost on those people, so that's a good idea. And yeah. Them, the risk of doing that as well, and you being shot in the back while you're photographing them. And, and the perks work really well, so you end up, uh, that photograph technique only takes you like half a second. You, you just point the camera and, and mm. photograph and, and it's done. Where if, you know, at the very start you've got the, you know, maybe a two second wait, which is a significant amount of time when someone's bearing down yeah. you with uh, firearms. Um, same as hacking turrets and, and vending machines and, mm. and setting traps. They, they've all speeded up for perk systems, which work really well. Um, in terms of filling up bars, they're, they're literally just ways of saying, look, if you kill people with 30 fireballs, then you will you know, fill up this bar, and what does that do? That just gives you more XP. Yeah, it, it fills up more bars. 
bonuses. <laughs> and uh, it's just a way of keeping it as compulsive as yeah. possible well, yeah, it, whilst giving you variety and encouraging yeah. different play so people aren't just using the same weapons over and over again. Yeah, ultimately, there's a, there's a whole bunch of challenges, and those challenges go towards your overall rank. Mm. Uh, will give you XP, which go towards your overall rank, which then unlock uh, either plasmids or guns or just different techniques that you yeah. wouldn't have access to until you get to higher ranks. Yeah, as you get higher up the ranks, they become sometimes less impressive for the amount of time it takes you to unlock them, but then you know you don't want everyone to be well over, overly powerful, such as a nuclear explosion, which can end the game if you're good enough. Yeah. That's fun, right? But um, outside of that, I mean, the protector trials is something I've, I've always been keen on, and I've, that's something I told you you needed to play, because I think they're really interesting. Um, and if, if you're more of a single-player focused person, um, but you know, want to explore something outside of Rapture, I think they're well worth a look because it just gives you a, it's all, all, almost a tutorial of how to use your plasmids within yeah. the main game. They give, um, give you a different combo of a, of a few mm. plasmids and a few weapons every time. Yeah, and, and limit exactly what you can use. So it's like you, you can, you've only got telekinesis and decoy here and the drill. Get mm-hmm. out of that one. Yeah, and uh, that's where I found my love of the bees. <laughs> Playing through that, you love but bees. Bees are awesome. Wow, I didn't know this from the from the main game because I was too busy electrocuting people. And there was a number of uh, plasmids which I, I then actually through a second place really heavily relied on, which I only through, through, found through the protector trials. So that's good. The rest of the DLC is all just cosmetic stuff and, and uh, like um, an extra rank. Mm. Can, uh, what's the word? Um, prestige. Yeah, exciting. <laughs> I will say, and we'll talk about Minerva in a few days' time, but I wish that they had put a definite separation between Bioshock 2 and Minerva's Den, that they'd gone, right, you can play Bioshock 2 now or Minerva's Den and kept the two games running consecutively. It's like to get to Minerva's Den, you have to go to downloadable content and just click on the thing and start a new game. And mm-hmm. then from then on, you have to just click continue. And it's just how you get into it. But it's almost like it marginalises how important and how good that Minerva's Den content is. But yeah, we'll talk I'll, about that in a few days. I'll let you do a whole show on it. I mean, it's it's <laughs> I, my summarisation of it is I like the fact that it's very much a, a self-contained. You know, it's what five hours. Yeah, maybe it's slightly a, it's less. Self-contained narrative. Um, self-contained narrative, and um, it unlocks a lot of the abilities of the Big Daddy stuff, which. Mm. You know, are are present in Bioshock too, but you have to put a number of hours in to to unlock that stuff. Yeah. It's all there at the very start. Um, so if you're new to the whole series and just want a glimpse of what Bioshock can be, it's it's actually a really good self-contained piece of content. That's a fine you a, point. It's a good starting. Yeah, it just gives yeah. you a good uh, taster of everything that that Bioshock is. Um, and then more importantly, I mean, this this will sum up the whole series. Like I. I I believe that Bioshock is Rapture itself is a place of many many stories mm. and that's why I never understood when people said Bioshock should just be a singular story it was you know a start uh, it was a complete narrative to, to give it its due mm. and it was you know a, a very good one at that but I never believed that Rapture as a place should have just been left like Rapture many people came to Rapture to um, explore the ultimate end of their their abilities because they have no boundaries so 
I mean, what greater place? That's a, that's a perfect, perfect place of study for, for any narrative in there. And Bioshock 2 takes it in a different direction. Minerva's then, then takes it in a different direction again with its, you know, um, study of computers, mm. uh, which is really interesting. And I believe there's, there's probably another, you know, half a dozen stories to be told within Rapture. And many of them are done by, you know, Bioshock 1 and 2 and Minerva's Den. But I bet there's a few more in there that if you really wanted to continue with the Rapture mythos that you could continue to do so. But obviously it's, it's span off in its different direction. Now we're in, we're flying in the sky with Columbia, so we'll probably never go back down to the depths of, of Rapture think? again. I actually uh, heartily predict that we will go back at some point because this made uh, an impact in the same way that I predict that sometime in the future, maybe even when we're all, you know, long gone, we're going to go back to the verse. I think we're going to go back to Rapture as well. The verse. Yeah. Because <laughs> that sort of thing sticks in the public conscious eventually. And it will come back. Yeah, but that, you, you say that, but there was enough people saying that that two, you know, overstepped its, its its place. You know, Rapture should have been left as, as this single piece. And you know, I don't agree. With them, Forever is I, a long time. In twenty years, people will go. You know, when Bioshock was really oh, good. I can imagine, yeah, Rapture. Rapture yeah. in my virtual holodeck. And then you get amazing. the remake of the original <laughs> Bioshock, and then it'll spin off into various other stories. Yeah. Because I mean, it's seriously in five years' time. Even just playing it now, the the facial animations on the original and the ending of that game. I mean, it's far from perfect. But you know, after all, you know, Rapture is a city that held a hundred thousand people. Yeah, you know, plenty of stories going on there. Super, yeah. We've you said Tony that uh, the. Um, the, the Rapture novel is the prequel to the game we'll never see. The fall of Rapture itself is a full story. Yeah, um, that could that, be explored. I, I believe that's probably uh, the, the the book itself is absolutely primed for for an adaptation into a game. Yeah. Um, and there, there's a big story there to be told. I don't. I think it probably works better as a novelization because mm. there's a lot of stuff you know about Andrew Ryan growing up from his childhood there. Yeah. I mean, yes, they could put that within audio diaries, but I, it would I think feel it's a bit like suited. the original Bioshock. You'd just be getting a bit more information. Yeah, so, but I, I would wholeheartedly recommend it if people are more interested in, in finding more about Rapture. Than to check out the novel because it, it it really does go into great detail of. Cause I've always uh, there was a many elements about Rapture. Of, I, I just wondered how the hell this thing was built, and people just didn't know about it. And it, I mean, they they can they all but convinced me that it could have been done maybe. <laughs> but um, it's 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 fascinating to hear how all these characters come together as as one singular piece. Written by John Shirley, available on Kindle. Yeah, and and Ken Levine um, stamp of approved as well. So even though. It features much fiction from Bioshock 2. So there you go. I'm getting mixed signals here. Go figure. (laughs) You always were the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. You always take the sweetest. Because I love you more 
Right, Sharon. Yes. Uh, why is this your favourite game series now, eclipsing even Mass Effect? I think if I'm going to pin it down to one thing, it's got to be the realisation of the world. It didn't really strike me until I started reading the novel. Very, very quickly, it took me back into the world without really having to try very hard. I mean, it could simply be that the book is very well written, and that's what's achieved that. But normally when I I read something that's based on a series that I've enjoyed so far, usually fanfic, but there have been some official novels and things that I've dipped into it doesn't necessarily grab me in the same way um, and I realised when I started reading that that I, it was because, basically because I was desperate to go back to Rapture, it was basically a case of I, I was willing to be grabbed and dragged very quickly when I played Minerva's Den, the emotional impact of that game again got hold of me very quickly which I was really quite impressive I thought because it's a very short game overall, although obviously it's fairly extended for what you would normally expect from a piece of DLC. It almost didn't, it didn't feel like just an extra added on bit to me. It felt like a whole extra chapter in the, the Bioshock universe. And it seemed to fit very cohesively with what had previously been put together. And as I talked about in the last podcast, I think that's to do with the multidimensional layered ways that the the world is communicated. You've got the music, you've got the, um, I can't even call it graphic design, but the the decor of the whole place, the the way it looks, the aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. The fact that you can be walking down one of the corridor link tubes and, and you look up and wherever you look, there's... The fish are swimming past and everything is just, it's, it's all there. It feels so absorbing. The point at which I realised that Mass Effect just didn't have the same grip for me anymore mm-hmm. was walking around, um, at, as you said, at the tail end of Minerva's Den. And I didn't want to leave. I, I just wanted to keep walking around and, and looking at this this place that had formed around me and changed around me and was small enough and close enough that everything felt familiar about it. That The Mass Effect world is maybe a little bit too big and a little bit too spread out. And maybe there's a slight coldness about it now because Mass Effect 3 hasn't had the the emotional impact on me that the earlier games had the in the dialogue in the character interaction that the first two did and from what i've played although obviously i haven't played infinite myself i've seen a lot of it um but in the in the rapture world certainly it's had that emotional engagement for me the whole way through and Minerva's Den was even more intensively so. This was a a game that was almost entirely about love and about relationships and, and how those connections with people stay with you and you you carry them on into absolutely everything that you do um, and there were some moments in there that absolutely blew me away that there was the the point at which i realized who i was as sigma and that's the other thing as well i all of those characters that i've played i've felt that they were me i was them even though it doesn't have the the customization of the mass effect world but 
I saw the the spiral that was written on the floor that had Sigma and Porter and all the arrows that were joining it together, and it didn't even really click. It wasn't until you got into the final room with um, Wal, and he said something about the the being the partner who was stood behind you and I suddenly thought oh my god I've just realized who I am and I couldn't believe it had taken me that long to put it together but that just slammed me into all of these things that Porter's been talking about oh my god those are my feelings those are my emotions (laughs) my emotions my emotions (laughs) (laughs) um and and they they felt real they really did feel intense and impactful and really pulled me into what I was doing and and who I was doing it to and why Um, and one of the other things that that I wanted to say about um, uh, Minerva's Den was there was a point at which I thought what something's missing about this what is it about this game or this DLC that's not the same as the first two and it's the main Bioshock theme uh, the music theme from the soundtrack. And I was trying to work out why that not being there to start with felt wrong, but by the end of it, it, it did feel completely right that that wasn't there. That music is extremely mournful. And to me, that speaks of um, a hope and an inspiration that's gone wrong and has fallen. And it's about an ideal that's died or is dying. But Minerva's Den is about hope leaving. They get out. They, you know, they take what's left of Rapture back to the surface. And it tied in for me with the end of Bioshock 2 where Eleanor gets away. And it just brought all these ideas into my head about, you know, their lives going on after Rapture and the things that they take away with them. And that that piece of music being absent and very noticeably absent seemed to fit perfectly with that theme. It is also important that it is a, a, one of very few games where you play a, a black main character. Yeah. And so they sort of found a way of sort of sneaking that in, you know, make it into a you, the main character is this, but you don't know until you've uh, started to emphasise with the character, and then which is a, is a way of, sort of making people who might not be as as interested in playing a certain character think, oh, that's you know, I I can have the same uh, level of interest with someone who who's not like me or someone that I don't want to play as. I don't think there's, of course, those people exist, but I don't think it must have much of an impact on the gaming market. San Andreas did gangbusters. I think that was the, the best-selling GTA game. Yeah, but there are far fewer games with black men characters. And, I mean, I, I was widening that to incorporate other other minority characters as well. Um, as I've said before, I'd like to uh, them just uh, reveal at some point in the middle end of a game that the character you're playing and have been playing for a long time, the butch tough chap, is gay. Yeah. Just, just, to, just to hear the explosions on Twitter and then everyone being told to shut up and grow up. Yeah, I... I would, I would love a game like that. <laughs> um, co- conversation with our show, but I would like more. I think the way to progress is to have games where there is a set. The Uncharted games, Nathan Drake is straight and he has straight relationships. I think the the, the way of gaining more exceptions is to have sort of gay main characters that are set and just sort of bringing it to the forefront rather than things like Dragon Age and Mass Effect where you can choose because people choose, will yeah. not 
people will not choose those like the like we saw about the percentage of people who chose Femship. The reason they've been this has been pretty thin on the ground is that um, most p- publishers are terrified that that will affect yeah. sales in a serious way. I think we've definitely talked just, about some of those lines before. Yeah, I think it just needs one one game to do it well, and then everyone will go, "Oh, we should I, do that as well." Well, uh, Ballad of Gay Tony did pretty well. Yeah, but you didn't play as the gay character. If if it had been, oh, so you actually have to be playing as a gay character. I don't think that's I, fear I, effect that springs to mind. However, think, you were playing a sexy lady. Yeah, I think you need. I think you need to get into that. Otherwise, it's just like oh, they're the token character, or it's like yeah, you know, they're not good enough to be the main character. They're just the the character that people could not like or, or yeah. like. But if it's the main I'll character, I'll play Gay Tony, but I won't like it. <laughs> I think yeah. there's that element that we talked about before as well about playing female characters involved in straight relationships that you are then having to engaged in a relationship with a man. Yeah, I'm not going to kiss a man with my joy pads. As a straight white male gamer, some people, and I honestly think there's probably a lot less of them than the impression is sometimes given. The minority can shout very loudly. They can, yes. And usually what they're saying is so stupid that we all pay attention and go, what did you say? Which gives what they've just shouted far more credence than it probably deserves. Fuck off! You ain't natural. (laughs) Piss our sticks. He shoot that in my face. (laughs) I had him with his own blunderbuss, didn't I? (laughs) <laughs> it's going to take a, a decent sized studio to agitate it but let's face it it's not going to come from a huge studio it's going to come from smaller uh, indie games and they're going to be uh, hopefully in a time later hailed at least in that regard as being courageous if, if only because they're actually putting something at stake i.e. their success yeah, which is, I mean, why I think it's good in, in this context, which is a, a AAA game, but it's like the side projects that they could just do what they like. They basically could do what they liked, uh, it seems. And uh, I think that's a very good avenue they went down, which is why I, I respect Rockstar, them. for all their crassness, will still continue to push the envelope in that regard as well. Yeah, I think the thing is Rockstar, they don't care. <laughs> Is there something to be said for um, these games actually being considered role-playing games? Stuck them in the survival horror in there too, but I'm not sure what constitutes a role-playing game since so many RPG elements are infiltrating all kinds of games now. I mean, the multiplayer mode has the kind of levelling up system that you would expect of the average role-playing game. I'd say they are more... Although obviously the the mechanics are different... Mm. They're more similar in tone to a JRPG style where you have a very distinct character and a very distinct story that you're part of um, than what tends to be the Western style, which is a a much more fluid character that then then sort of seeks into a a wider world. There is a case to be made that they're on another kind of RPG that is neither the template RPG nor the JRPG where they tend to follow certain lines that has snuck up in the uh, past few years. Because, let's face it, when you're playing a role in a game, there's very few real choices to be made in a lot of JRPGs, whereas most Western RPGs seem to be about choice. This tends to straddle both of them. 
mostly it's about the combat and you don't get that many choices to make but the ones that you do in Bioshock 2 specifically make a real difference yeah I don't know if this needs to be more gradations of, of, S, of the FPS genre like you know this is a story focused shooter yeah rather than as they call it juicy just because I don't think the stories have got very, are very good anymore but that are more mechanics focused than than the stories like sort of an afterthought serious Sam yeah <laughs> Um, but this, this, and, and sort of Mass Effect is, you know, is an RPG, but has sort of a, it could be considered the later ones are what, also a story based shooter. Yeah. Some of the absolute best games of the past few years tend to be more of a, a series of circles. So you get a large circle in the middle saying FPS, and then various other circles around them with other types of genre, which tend to get woven into the, the, the whole ensemble. So well, you could represent them in a diagram as separate. They're all kind of intermingling those aspects. I think that's just, uh, just because the, uh, the generation has gone on so long, people have had more chance to... Uh, sort of fiddle around with things and just try different things yeah. without having that large break-off point that, oh, we have to move on to... We need to make a game that will sell to, for the new console, but which we're getting into now. But before that, you could just go, oh, we we'll, might as well make something different because uh, what we were doing wasn't selling. Yeah. I think um, it's actually quite an old design template that Bioshock takes. We talked about the RPG elements. We talked about it in the previous show, but... It does stem from games like Deus Ex, Thief, yeah, yeah. Um, System Shock 2, Stalker, you know, I mean, it's just, it's very much a traditional almost PC thing that you just, the just console generation start to see in consoles. I mean, I hope it continues. I mean, I love, I love that sort of blend of first person action and yeah. RPG elements. And the last successful one, well, it was infinite, but, Dishonored as well. I keep mm. talking about Dishonored, but mm. again, it's very much that same school of choice as how you take the combat, if indeed you take combat or not, but all the different powers and stuff. I got through the uh, first massive, massive level of that uh, the other day. It's so tense and so... Yeah. I was on tenterhooks the entire way around, creeping around, constantly looking through walls, really paying attention to myself. It's a lovely game because it doesn't punish you if you make a mistake, you know. There was actually there's elements of RPG in that. I mean, um, yeah. Josh and a couple of other people have pointed out the plot is weak in comparison to the Bioshock mm. games. But I went into a uh, abandoned house and read a diary of a lady at the beginning who was accounting how sh- her children had started becoming sick because of the rat plague. Just you know, one by one throughout this this fairly short journal. Uh, her children are taken from her and then and her husband and um, then I noticed that when I finished listening I, I looked around the room and then I turned back to the table and she she was dead on the floor beside the journal I hadn't even seen her and I picked her up and took her to the corner where there were three body bags and just laid her down with them and I just created my own little tiny story there uh, but it was one of the most heart-wrenching moments of um, of, of this year yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dishonored um has a lot of elements that we've seen in Bioshock, um especially the yeah, people dying and leaving notes behind. Um mm-hmm. especially I mean the the first one I noticed was you break out of the prison and there's a there's a sewage tunnel and there's a there's a couple there 
which it you know it looks exactly like it could have come out of of the first Bioshock game. Yeah, it's no um, surprise because no. worked on Bioshock too. <laughs> I had another experience just a few days after we recorded this. I went through an art dealer's house and took out the guys who were trying to rob his place, leaving their unconscious bodies on the floor. And I broke into the walk-in safe that they were trying to steal from, raided it, and was about to leave when I broke open a doorway and rats poured out. Now, I'd resolved to not kill anyone in this level. If somebody died and I couldn't help it, then so be it. But at this stage, I absolutely could stop these guys being eaten while unconscious by rabid, ravenous rats. So then began this really weird struggle where I was grabbing each of these guys and running up and down the house trying to get them into the safe and lock all four of them inside so I could leave the house unattended safe in the knowledge that when they all woke up they'd be somewhat the worse for wear but they'd be inside a room safe from the rats. Now this was entirely emergent which is to say multiple different aspects of gameplay playing off each other in unexpected and significantly unintended ways and entirely dependent on the way I was playing the game. But I love situations like this. I was like reading interviews and Shodan was supposed to be, um, well, the Thinker was supposed to be the precursor to yeah. uh, Shodan. The thing on the, the official website, she's got all the Easter eggs of Minerva's yeah. Den, and yeah, one of them does say it's, um, it's called the, the proper name is Rapture Operational Data Interpreter Network, yeah. which is R O D I N, which is. Pronounced Rodan to, to after Rodan, who's got yeah, which is in the the lobby. Nice, and obviously yeah. that rise of showdown. So the ending to Minerva's Day is exactly like the ending to System Shock Two. Yeah, which in turn uh, was rather similar to. I mean, it's even more similar to the ending of System Shock Two, but um, at the end of the original Bioshock, you got um, the whole reveal. It's, it all just comes down to the unreliable narrator. Yeah, I read that Jordan Thomas wasn't happy with it, so they ultimately went with um, Porter actually being the big daddy, because originally they were going to have you finding Porter's dead body, and it was the thinker that was that had you know had his personality, which is exactly what happens in System Shock Two, isn't it? You find the dead body of I can't remember her name. Dr. Janice Polito. And Shudan's reveals to be the person that you were talking to all the time. The Polito form is dead, insect. Are you afraid? What is it you fear? The end of your trivial existence. When the history of my glory is written, your species shall only be a footnote to my magnificence. This is Nate Wells and Scott Sinclair, the technical artist and art director, talking about the first Bioshock and the art design of Rapture. It's a challenge. I mean, it's always a challenge. And this is a challenge that's gone on as long as there's been video games. And certainly, it's been highlighted since the age of 3D video games. Because you you have artists trying to achieve what they're trying to achieve, and designers, you know, trying to achieve a a game space and a play space. I mean, the best... The best situations you find that they complement each other, that a space that's good for tactical combat tends to look 
good for art because it means there's pillars and architectural features and and light in different places. Um, so when those things happen, it's great. Other areas, we will thrash out right till the very end, trying to get them right, trying to get concordance between design and art. And there's shouting, and you know, eventually, you know, we get every space to where it needs to be. Well, the compromise comes, you know, when you know design roughs in a space, and they require uh, the player, you know, for example. Uh, work its way up the scaffolding or these fallen, co fallen columns. But the space, the narrative of the space is a subway station, and sometimes that doesn't make sense for the type of space you're trying to create. So there's this back and forth. Um, it's fun. It's challenging. So you change the game plan, change the space, and meet in the middle. You just rip out all their stuff. And yeah, and they just yeah, ignore everything they have to say. <laughs> that was one of those things that just sort of materialized as, you know, we were trying different art styles and, and things like that. Uh, to try to avoid really video gamey spaces, that was one of the things we went with. So tell you, um, it's a fantastic way to get uh, art direction props because, you know, what game is set set in in, in a time period like that? You know, it's usually yeah. just a sci-fi gray brown world. Yeah, and so we had our chance, you know, the opportunity to pick and choose, you know, from objects and architecture that that did exist and really just mold it into new things and sort of blow it out of proportion to even the simplest little things. And I think the first the first exteriors I remember that we did were much more functional looking, of course. Like they look like you know, I remember thinking about and I did some early visualizations of well, if you have a building on the seafloor and there's you know, the seafloor is constantly moving, how do you balance that building? And you know, eventually we threw all that stuff out and decided that, you know, it's a much bigger impression to really see the city that's sort of just sunk. It looks just like a you know, a city and yeah. and, and it played into the fact that Rapture was sort of a terrible idea in the first place. It never could have possibly worked. And, you know, that hubris and, and you know, that vanity that they thought it could work, it played better to see an entire city. It needed to look a little preposterous and ridiculous, but also beautiful. And it's easier, I think, for the player to identify with that time period and, you know, with what we were intending to say about this being a city rather than it being like these domes on the seafloor. We would do walkthroughs of the level and you know, try to hit key points that make the player feel they're constantly underwater, whether that's a leak in the ceiling that's depositing water on the floor. And you never know how that stuff's going to work out. You kind of put it in there, but once it got in there with final effects and sound, it, it, I think it turned out to be really convincing. You can't turn a corner without, you know, seeing or hearing or feeling water in some way. There were three cats, uh, dead cats you find. Apparently Bioshock 2, there was one in every level. Yeah. And that, that, that it was, uh, continued in Nervous End called, um, Babbage, Lovelace, and Turing. Yeah. Obviously after Charles Babbage, Ada Lovelace, and Alan Turing, which I thought was a nice, uh, addition to people who know, obviously know the history of computing, just like, oh, that's just included by people who know what they're talking about. Yeah. Was one of the cats in, uh, Bioshock 2 Schrodinger? Yeah. Except for the fact that you could see it. Therefore, it totally wasn't well, Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. Oh. Very definitely. <laughs> Unless that's <laughs> where Schrodinger's cat went. <laughs> Through a wormhole with a quantum well. probability of one. Oh, yeah, hang on. This is the universe in which the cat is dead. Our universe is the one in which the cat is alive. <laughs> yeah, nice. I, I found Turing. I only found he was hidden on a shelf. And I just randomly used... Um, telekinesis to pick something else up and this dead cat flew at me. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So it's like a cat in closet moment, except the cat was dead. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Rigor mortis, felis, telekinesis. Um, I, I really liked the design of the doors. I, mean, I, was there, I thought they were very nice uh, 
uh, Art Deco approximation of an owl. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Minerva was the Roman goddess of wisdom and sponsor of arts, trade, and defense. She was born from the godhead of Jupiter with weapons. She's also the Roman equivalent of Athena, and Athena's symbol is an owl. The owl of Athens. Another lovely touch was um, towards the end when you're in Porter's apartment Mm. and he has this colour television prototype. It was lovely, yeah. There's actually th- uh, three coloured bottles earlier in the uh, game that correspond to that, the red, bleak, green and blue. Did, you, did any of you play the, the Spitfire game? Yeah, that, oh, that was horrible. That's bugged on PC. Um, yeah. So I uh, went on it and then lost about half an hour of playtime. Yeah. So I just couldn't get out of it. It's a lovely parallel to Steve Russell's Space War. So. Uh, on the kill screen, there's a Pixel Golf Club and the letter R. One of the reasons I, hi- I hold it slightly higher again than Marshall 2 is just because it's based around computing and, and I'm interested in computing and it, it mentions and sort of champions Alan Turing who I've got a lot of respect for. Yeah. He developed the basis of, of what all modern computers run on and he should, should be far, far more well known than he is if this is the way of getting him known to more people then it's a, it's a good, a good way of, of doing that. Uh, as this is, um, surrounding Turing I thought I'd, I'd give some shout outs to excellent places to visit if you want to know more about him and, and what he did and, and early computing uh, there's of course Bletchley Park uh, which obviously he uh, was instrumental in during the Second World War and shortened the war dramatically saving millions of lives uh, and that's a, a very interesting place to go around and just and and you mentioned the, the bomb at the beginning of the show You can they've actually got a working one Bletchley Park is actually where the term computer comes from because uh, they had lots of women inputting data called computers. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, at the moment, until the 30th of June, uh, there's a Alan Turing exhibit at the London Science Museum, which uh, I've been to, and it's it's incredibly uh, interesting. And that, that shows his pilot ace computer and, and more about him and his life. I'm loath to compare him to uh, most rapture folk who tend to be very selfish and psychotic, uh, as I said before. But I think what I was zeroing in on was uh, a combination of brilliance and tragedy. It's beautiful, though, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the story, um, the heart of the story is what really had the biggest impact on me. From personal experience, I know what tragic loss can be if you're unable to say goodbye to someone so when you suddenly lose them it's hard to let go the story really resonated with me and I really had an affinity with Porter you know and it was kind of heartbreaking to see how incredibly lonely he was to the point where he would refer to the thinking machine as his friend but it's got its problems as well you know Um, Reed Wall is the I only mentioned him, he's waffathin. He is the worst antagonist in the entire series. Yeah. And just, I think, almost worse than um, Fontaine, you know. Um, but there's lots of lovely touches throughout that really um, impressed me. Like, um, new character design of the Splicers, I love how they've got their lab jackets still on. The small things like the, the introduction to Electric and the rocket shooting sentry bots. Now, because it's maybe in Minerva's den and it's computing, I find myself hacking and using security bots a lot more than I did in the other games. 
and I thought that was fitting for the, the area that I was in. We finally get to meet Tenenbaum waiting for us in the in the bathosphere and there's no glass separating us. Mm. And it's just a lovely little scene, her sitting there waiting for you, cigarettes all by her feet, because she's chain-smoking, which obviously like, you think she's been there for a while. Mm. Then you can see she's reading a book and there's all the, the, the thinker cards, punch cards in the bathosphere. A bottle of Adam. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And she's got a cure. It's, 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 it almost like closes the loop, you know, I mean, it finishes, it's a happy ending, you know, a lovely happy ending. Yeah. And being able to let go, you know, um, Porter being able to finally let go a pearl after realising that it, he did, you know, he wanted to say goodbye to her, but he can't, you know, that's the tragedy. Programming the thinker just to hear her voice again. It almost and feels then, like a technological ghost story. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And hearing her voice again, but realising this isn't her and I can't say goodbye to her. I never will be able to say goodbye to her. I'm going to just have to let her go and move on. It's a lovely ending. I mean, that's the, the audio diary you find there. That's the only one that I actually walked and listened to. All the others I've, you know, I sit there, listen to it and then move on. But that one, just because sort of what is being said and the, the emotions being conveyed, it, it fits perfectly with the music and and going through um, his old life. Well, Thinker, Ryan's secret police are on their way. They cooked up some kind of evidence against me. Treason, they say. I've heard what happens to folks who get disappeared, come back as one of those metal daddies. So I'm leaving you with something to cogitate on in my absence. Inputting rapture departure protocol. Figure a way to get yourself out of this city, thinker. You've got to live on, no matter what happens to me. You'll find a way. You're in the thinker's core. The code printer is upstairs in the control booth. Top-level access only. You'll need to confirm your genetic identity to start the printing process. Herr Sigma, it is Dr. Tannenbaum. With the computer disabled, my nervous den is falling to pieces. No pressure regulation, no air supply. You must defeat Vol and bring the sinker back to full power. Your moment has come, old friend. I stand before you, the trusted partner who put a knife in your back. Do not disappoint me. Quickly, take the administrator punch card from Val's body and reactivate the thinker. Mainframe reactivated. Confirming user's genetic identity. Genetic identity confirmed. Alpha series. Subject Sigma. Former identity, Charles Milton Porter. Welcome back, Milton. Uh-huh. System ending personality duplication. Subject, Charles Milton Porter. You see now why I let the machine speak for you, Mr. Porter. 
We needed a voice that would be familiar, comforting, your own. With that copy of the Thinker's programming, we may return to the surface and use it to restore you to the man you once were. Please, collect the printout and meet me at your bathysphere dock. Take your time, Mr. Porter. I will be waiting. I believe I'm done feeding audio recordings and personal anecdotes to the thinker. I am set to test the personality duplication function. Target personality, Pearl Porter. Thinker, are you ready? Yes, Milton. <clears throat> Starting test. Hello, Pearl. Hello, Milton. How... <clears throat> How have you been? Just wonderful, Milton. I've missed you, though. It's been so long. Pearl, I... No. No, this isn't right. It isn't her. Thinker, stop the test. But what's the matter, Milton? Oh, God. Don't you still love me? Oh, God, I... Oh, God, I said... I said, end function, thinker. Now! It's over. One thing that struck me as I was reading the Rapture novel was how much money it took to build this city. Uh, Andrew Ryan was an immensely successful industrialist who built his way up from nothing. He had enough money to live ten luxurious lifetimes takes a special kind of narcissistic psychopath to decide that your work is contribution enough to society and that you should be exempt from taxes. Because that is what this is all about, really. Ryan tried to overcome one of the two certainties in life, and Porter the other. But Charles was able to see his mistake and pull back from it, admit his human frailty and move on. Ryan was not and violently, belligerently self-destructed, attempting to destroy the forest he'd planted and its remaining occupants in the process. Porter left sadly, leaving behind him the web of cages that he'd become trapped by, both physically and emotionally. He left to do what Ryan decided against, giving selflessly for the good of the world. Like Tenenbaum, he is spurred on by his regrets and motivated by a need to do better. The thinker never gave up on you, Mr. Porter. It could not leave you behind. Please, step up to the console and begin the bathysphere launch sequence. We have much work ahead of us. I'd like to thank my guests, Mark Ord of Gonzo Planet. Thank you. Chris Eason of Game Burst. Thank you. Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home. Thank you for having me. And also Tony Atkins of Kane and Rince and Gary Blower of Game Burst. We will be back in one week's time with a massive, epic show on Bioshock Infinite. We'll see you then. I lived through the Blitz, Pearl, and the fall of Rapture. They took my memory, my voice, everything that made me a man. But nothing ever scared me so much as saying goodbye. I wanted to save you. I couldn't resist trying to bring you back the only way I knew how. But 
you didn't want that. I know it now, and I think I'm finally ready to let you go your way. I stand here with the sun on my face, and it's almost like I can feel you smiling. Goodbye, Pearl. I love you more than I've got words for. Milton. In the morning 